WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. A possible Senate run for Curtis Hill, a campaign urging lawmakers to change the state's alcohol laws. That plus Dan Coates doesn't want to answer questions and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending June 9th, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, rumors swirling that Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill is exploring a run for the U.S. Senate. Hill, a former Elkhart County prosecutor, only became attorney general a few months ago after receiving the most votes in the 2016 election. A hardline conservative, Hill is reportedly mulling a run against Democratic incumbent Senator Joe Donnelly. Congressman Todd Rakita and Luke Messer are also potential candidates for the GOP nomination. And in the last week or so, Curtis Hill has released a couple of interesting missives from his office. One was an op-ed in the Indy Star warning state lawmakers not to legalize marijuana. The other, a statement from his office praising President Trump for pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Is Curtis Hill going to run for U.S. Senate? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Joey Fox, John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. Ann Delaney, is this Curtis Hill's time? Well, I mean, you, you have a Democrat in there, and if he wants to be in the U.S. Senate, this is the time for him. He's just come off a statewide election. He's obviously better known than either of the other two Republicans that are aspiring to run. And, um, you know, if, this, if he wants to be in the U.S. Senate, he'd be silly to let this pass. Joey, it's, it's already looking it could be a little bit of a crowded primary with Rokita and Messer certainly making a push for this and, and labeled probable candidates at this point, even if they haven't announced. As a Republican Party, are you rooting for Curtis Hill to get in, or do you want to keep this as, as less crowded as possible? What I would say, I think this speaks to how deep of a bench the Republican Party has. And I think that uh, I think that you're going to see, regardless of who gets nominated at the end of the day, Joe Donnelly is going to have a run for his money on this thing. Curtis has been crisscrossing the state in both his official and uh, political capacity, as have, as have the others. He's not afraid to take a stand on issues that are, that are controversial. Well, so I, I, think that, uh, I, I think that we're going to have, uh, have a heck of a primary, and, and Joe Donnelly's got some worrying to do. So it's right wing versus writer and writer and writer wing. That's what it is. It's great. It is a Republican Party primary. Well, but there are there are reasonable Republicans. Unfortunately, not in that. Oh, I would love to know Anne's definition of reasonable Republican. <laughs> I think it's a Democrat. Richard Luger. <laughs> Richard Luger would be a reasonable Republican. None of those three measure up. You know, the battle tested. The candidate who comes out of that fight will be tested, and the message will be honed. And it's we couldn't ask for anything better than a contested primary. If you'd have an uncontested prim- uh, candidate. Thank goodness we can marshal our resources and save them until, and in, if you take the truth serum and administer it, anybody would We're want in the anybody seat. wants an uncontested race. <laughs> I mean, when you get, I don't fault Joey for saying what he said, 
Thanks. But, but you're but, not telling the truth. But, <laughs> but you'd rather have one candidate like able to able to marshal his resources. Yeah. Aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> John, he only became attorney general earlier this year after winning the 2016 election. Is will this be viewed unfavorably as political opportunism, or is it, as Ann pointed out? If he's going to do it, now's the time to do it. Well, I'm still a little mystified by Anne's ringing endorsement of Curtis Hill's intentions. It tells me that she's uh, got some interesting thoughts about whether he becomes candidate or not and the benefit to Joe Donnelly if he does. Uh, I think your point is well taken. Uh, he just took the oath of office in January. Um, it could be seen as being awful ambitious. Uh, but I also think that uh, we're in an atmosphere uh, where there isn't a um, penalty to pay for that as much anymore as there might have been before. And I do think Ann's point is well made in, in uh, many respects, but certainly in the fact that this is his opportunity. Uh, because if Joe Donnelly can't win uh, the, the seat back this, this time, uh, the Republicans will probably hold it for a long time. And the Republican that wins that uh, is set up fairly well. conversely. Well. If Joe Donnelly wins, which I expect to have happen, then he will the be in there a long right, time. Right, then the Republicans lose that opportunity exactly. for that seat. You're right. To that end, uh, so I mentioned R Messer and Rakita are probable candidates. They've been making all the moves behind the scenes and doing They're everything that you Attacking each other, is that what you <laughs> that, mean? That too a little bit, but... So far, Curtis Hilly, it's, it's, oh, he's mulling, exploring, thinking about yeah, well, he have, how quickly does he have to pull the He doesn't have a lot of time because yeah. raising money in a federal campaign is a different commodity. He didn't raise any money to speak of, I'm assuming, to run for attorney general. He just rode the Trump wave in. This time, he's going to have to raise significant funds. On the other hand... Well, he had money, this, but it wasn't federally qualified money. Well, right. there's that. But on the other hand, this is going to be one of the races that the nationals are going to watch. There's no question about yeah. it because the control of the Senate city issue and whether the right-wing agenda goes through or not. So uh, I, 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 I'm betting well, on Joe his, Donnelly's His chances. path, let me just say this, his path is if Rokita and Messer continue with the internecine warfare here where they're going back and forth, does that, unless they include him in the in the fight and bloody him, does it clear, does, a, path it, does him? It clear a path for him in a surprising yeah. way? We'll know more, though, when the, the July fundraising numbers come out. And we'll and see we'll what, have to see start learning those answers soon. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, will Attorney General Curtis Hill run in the GOP's U.S. Senate primary in 2018? A yes or B no. Last week's question, are those Senate campaigns wasting their money with elections so distant? 57% say yes they are, 27% say no, 16% say well, consider it an economic boost for TV stations. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. The Marion County prosecutor this week filed charges against a Democrat-affiliated organization alleging falsified voter registration applications. The Indiana State Police began investigating the Indiana Voter Registration Project last year after reports from county clerks that they'd received inaccurate and erroneous information on some voter applications. Marion County Prosecutor Terry Curry this week filed charges against the group and 12 of its employees for submitting falsified voter applications in Marion and St. Joseph counties. Curry stresses that there's no sign of voter fraud or that any fraudulent ballots were cast in the 2016 election. In a statement, Curry also says he doesn't believe the group was engaging in a widespread effort to infringe voters, intentionally register ineligible individuals, or to impact the election. Instead, the prosecutor says the falsified applications are the result of what he calls bad business practices, with some employees believing they had to fill quotas. 
Joey Fox, this may be a broad question, but what should Hoosiers make of this? A group aligned with the Democratic Party has paid people to fraudulently register well, Hoosier that's voters. That's not why they paid them. Election fraud <laughs> is real. Oh, God. I'm just glad, uh, and frankly, despite Curry's claim uh, that he doesn't believe that this was done with the intention of impacting the election, I don't know why else uh, donors give money to organizations and candidates, the campaigns exist, I don't know why you register voters if you're not trying to influence the outcome of an election. I'm just thankful that we've had strong Republican leadership for so long that have led to common sense voter integrity practices like requiring a photo ID to cast a ballot. Um, Republicans have uh, been under merciless attack from Democrats for, for years, for years, for voter integrity, voter as they claimed that election fraud wasn't real. And now I had to check and this see if hell had frozen over because a Democratic prosecutor has now filed election fraud charges in, Mar- in Maryland. Well, I think that's an important distinction here. It was a Democratic prosecutor that filed it, and obviously they were sloppy practices. It is not voter fraud in the sense that elections are being stolen. People did the things they shouldn't have done, and Terry Curry, the Democrat prosecutor in Marion County, held them to account for it. All the other things that the Republicans have been doing in voter integrity or ballot integrity is voter suppression. And you can see that when you saw the, the, uh, the memos that were taken from the Alabama governor's office after he had his problem where he said, if we do this, we can suppress the Democratic and African-American turnout by X percentage and therefore win. That's what it's all about. And the fact that the process works to ferret out what sloppy kinds of uh, things you have when you hire people at a minimum wage to do a job and you give them quotas to make. That's a bad system to use. I agree with that. And I'm glad that Terry Curry um, did what he did on this. But it doesn't prove that there's the widespread election fraud that uh, Donald J. Trump has been claiming. Is this the goalpost move? Now it's widespread and now it's widespread Well, he said fraud. three million in- votes. In- instead of election fraud. We have fraudulent voter registrations in this place being pushed and being paid and by group aligned by the Democratic Party. They were stopped by the Democratic County clerk. This is a real issue, and that's why Republican leadership is important. You you can't make that argument with a straight face, John, is this voter fraud? Well, it's up to the... It's not voter fraud. It may be irregular registration practices. They may have done something uh, that was illegal in terms of gathering those uh, registrations and turning them in. But it, it doesn't indicate any indication or any sense where somebody goes in and fraudulently casts a ballot somehow. Um, and I do think that there's a, there's a pretty narrow line between fraud and suppression. And uh, we have always in the past uh, defaulted to more people being involved than fewer people being involved. But we've seen over the last several years, and I'm going to peg the Citizens United case really as, as kind of the turning point, with this infusion of money and the, the ability for campaigns and people outside of campaigns to raise money. You have these third parties uh, who are doing these kinds of things where they organize, uh, and instead of organizing around a uh, philosophy or a, uh, an issue, they organize because there's money to be had in the system. Uh, and they want to push one thing or another. And I think there is, again, it's a very fine line. Uh, but the, the, it has tilted from being um, uh, weighted against, you know, people, more people are being involved toward 
uh, we've got some sketchy activity done by people like this. John, there were Democrats in county clerk's offices who helped flag these these uh, fraudulent documents. Uh, certainly a Democratic prosecutor, Terry Curry, that you both noted, who's filing the charges. But does this further this, this national Republican um, uh, theme of election fraud ac- around the country? I'm sure it... it, it provides additional ammunition if you want to argue that case as the administration in Washington has. Uh, but again, you look at the flip side and you see federal courts in, in North Carolina, I believe, and others right. where, who have said, uh, and they're far more knowledgeable about these types of things than I am, at least in North Carolina, it was untoward what was going on. suppression. Uh, and so um, the fact is, all of this will be litigated, and ultimately, will be de- this will not be decided in the political arena. Well, that's suggesting the court is a different arena. It will de- be decided in the courts, uh, and and uh, in our state and and other states. Uh-huh. Moving on, Indiana's convenience stores launched a campaign this week to push legislators into rewriting the state's alcohol laws. The campaign is called Chill Indiana. It's led and funded by the state's convenience store trade association. The exact details aren't yet decided, but the campaign will use convenience stores across the state to spread its message to customers. Chill Indiana released a public poll to coincide with its launch. The results show strong support for the kind of reforms convenience stores seek, allowing all retailers to sell cold beer and legalizing Sunday alcohol sales. In a statement, the Indiana Beverage Retailers Association, which represents liquor stores, calls the campaign well-intentioned, but says it misses the point that alcohol is dangerous and buying it shouldn't be convenient. John Schwannis, a campaign like this isn't new. There have been several over the last several years. Will this one have success where those past campaigns didn't? Well, the issue certainly has been in the public uh, spotlight because of uh, what happened in this past session where you had the Rickers uh, convenience store chain, which found a loophole or maybe not a loophole, but a way to, in fact, sell alcohol. And Jay Ricker was standing up and there. Jay Ricker was there. So this was, and, and and a lot of lawmakers were willing to dismiss this as sort of a non-issue. But if you ask them how much, how your volume of of constituent contact, phone calls, email, uh, letters on this issue versus others, this was probably one of the league leaders in the past session. So people do care, and and the money is is plentiful on both sides, you know, in terms of grocery and convenience stores and then the package liquor stores. The other thing that makes this different has a catchy title. I mean, think about Beer Baron. If you go back as old as John and <laughs> As I you are. are. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I mean, whoever came up with Beer Baron, I, I don't know. But that, cha- that affected Indiana's public policy for 20 years. Yeah. And it, when these campaigns have been rolled out before, they were like the campaign to, to change the old... I mean, it was very scholarly. It's kind of right. yawner. Chill Indiana. Chill Indiana. Has very, I mean, this has, this has the sound of beer baron, so maybe so. John, uh, we're already seeing... So this is really the start of the two sides in this, in this fight starting to lob grenades at each other. And, and in response to this, the beverage retailers called them big oil was wrong about this one. So <laughs> if, if this starts devolving into the same old fight we always see, will that actually make things harder, to, make it harder to get things done? Um, I th- I, yes, because it'll, it'll muddle things in the legislature some. But a couple of things... I think to keep in mind here. One, the package stores are on the defensive and have been really through the whole session. Uh, there is, you know, the poll, uh, granted it was an industry poll and they can make it say what they want to say, but I do think objectively Hoosiers wonder why they can't buy beer on Sunday, they wonder why they can't get cold beer at a convenience store, and so I think the package stores are on the defensive. That's the first thing. Second thing is Senator Long, uh, and I believe it was earlier this week, 
when they announced the, the interim study committee and, and the, that they were going to do this, said that he expected to have legislation for this coming session, at least on the consumer side, yeah. involving alcohol. That is That really got my attention because uh, for him to say that now and to say that publicly puts pressure on the system uh, to get that legislation moving, and I think that's important. And that's a faster timetable than they had talked about. Much faster. They've got to come to the legislature and ask for the alcoholic beverage laws to be changed. They'd be better suited to that if they came with cleaner hands. I mean, the fact that they have single-handedly fought any common-sense attempts to protect their workers in the workplace. You know, scarcely a month goes by without a convenience worker being shot and in many cases killed because the convenience stores put profit ahead of their, their own employees' safety. I think if they compromised on that issue and came in and said, we'll give up this, we'll, we'll do something, they'd be in a stronger position to ask for favors. Does this, does this look good to the Hoosier public? If they're going to walk into a convenience store and they see posters up everywhere about Chill Indiana and this whole campaign and they have convenience store clerks talking to them about this sort of thing, is that going to play well out in Indiana? We'll see. This is kind of a classic um, political and policy issue, right, where many things can be true at the same time, where it can be absolutely true that consumers would like their, their purchase of alcohol to be more convenient to them. It can also be true that you've got a lot of businesses in Indiana that have been built on the assumption that state laws and rules would be relatively stable over time. Both of those things can, can be true. And I'm, you know, we have Speaker Bosma and, and Pro Tem Long, right, who have I think have a good track record of dealing with deliberately with complex issues. I think they've set up a, a good process to, to move forward here, and I, I think we'll we'll get to we'll get to some common sense solutions. But we've got to allow many things to be true at the same time and, and work slowly. You have more faith than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was wondering if that was going to go by unremarked un upon. <laughs> Former Senator Dan Coats this week repeatedly refused to answer questions as to whether President Donald Trump asked him to intervene in the FBI's Russia investigation. Coates, in his new role as Director of National Intelligence, appeared before the Senate Intelligence Committee alongside NSA Director Mike Rogers. Both indicated they never felt pressured to do anything inappropriate. But when asked directly whether President Trump had asked them to undermine the FBI investigation into Russian interference in the election, Rogers and Coates both dodged, leading to this testy exchange between Coates and Maine Senator Angus King. I want to, uh, I want to understand a legal basis. You swore that oath to tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and today you are refusing to do so. What is the legal basis for your refusal to testify to this committee? I'm not sure I have a legal basis, but I, I'm more than willing to sit before this committee and in its, in, during its investigative process in a closed session and answer your question. Well, John Ketzenberger, how long can Dan Coates evade this question? Uh, as long as he can say what he just said and do it with a straight face, I suppose. But what that tells me is that he's actually probably eager to get into a closed session uh, and say what he has to say. And the fact that he wants to say it in a closed session, I think, is also telling. Um, there has to be enormous pressure on everyone in the Trump White House right now. Uh, the testimony from James Comey this week was um, intense and uh, searing, and I think that... Um, uh, the entire White House uh, apparatus has to be thinking, um, you know, what is our exit uh, strategy and how do we pull the ripcord? Uh, and I wonder if uh, Senator Coates, uh, not Senator Coates anymore, but Dan Coates is... Um, uh, I One think, of those people? Yeah, I, th I think he's um, 
you know, by, by being willing to tell this in, in private to the Senate Intelligence Committee tells me that he has a story to tell. Does that, yeah, does that answer, I'd be more than happy to talk about it in a closed session, actually make things worse for the Trump administration? Because to, for, to the general public. In terms of the optics, yeah, yeah, I would say so, because it suggests that there is a story to tell. Um, I mean, in a way, he and, and he wasn't the only one. It was no. McMullen, and, and, or Mullen, Rogers, I should say, and, yeah. and the others who, uh, who were on, his counterparts on this, uh, in this hearing before the committee. Once they said we weren't pressured, we felt no pressure, that opens the door to the questioning. I think if they had said, uh, you know, we feel that it's inappropriate for us to discuss anything, any kind of, uh, make any um, inferences or draw any conclusions about our interactions with the president in the Oval Office. You can't answer Then you can't really the say the, the, the one the without the other. You open the door. Uh, but then, and I think by suggesting he's more than willing to do it in closed session, again, you don't say that if you've got nothing to say. You know, hey, we're going to close the doors. Let's, let's um, cue up the microphones. And now you say, I got nothing. How bad does this look for the Trump administration? It's infrastructure week, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's infrastructure week. The infrastructure of the Trump administration. <laughs> Senator Coates is probably one of the most patriotic and competent people um, that I've certainly ever met and that serve in government today. If he says he didn't feel any pressure to do so, I, I believe him. We'll have to see what comes out after, um, if, and, if and when he testifies in closed session. Nonsense. I mean, he, he's admitted himself he has no legal basis for refusing to answer. He says he hasn't felt any pressure. He needs to say what words were said to him. That's what he needs to say, what the president said to him, because he doesn't want to say it in front of the camera because it's going to, it's going to uh, reinforce what uh, Director Comey said under oath. And that's the problem they have. He had tried at multiple, the president's tried at multiple different levels to suppress the investigation of uh, Flynn and or the Russians. And so it seems to me that Dan Coats, if he is such a patriotic and dedicated American, owes it to the American people to tell the truth on camera and not hide behind politics, which is what he's doing right now. More delays this week on the section of Interstate 69 between Bloomington and Indianapolis. The original completion date for Section 5 of I-69, the stretch between Bloomington and Martinsville, was October of last year. But the public-private partnership has been dogged by delays and controversy, including a pay dispute that caused at least one subcontractor to walk off the job. After that dispute, several local lawmakers called on the state to take control of the project, which the Indiana Finance Authority at the time said was premature. But now the state does want to take over the project. According to IFA analysis, there's only $72 million in funding available of the more than $236 million needed to complete Section 5. The expected completion date is now August of 2018. Joey Fox, was this an instance where this public-private partnership wasn't the best course? Look, this is really frustrating for the completion of, of I-69, but I will give um, kudos to the governor and his team at IFA and across the administration for having the ability to see that this wasn't working and the leadership to change course um, when, that was, when that was the right thing to do. You don't see that a lot uh, in, in public figures. I think credit where credit is due, but I think the governor expressed his frustration as well um, at this, and I think uh, we're, we're all just looking forward to this, this being done. Is this less about an endemic problem with public-private partnerships and more about this was just a bad deal? 
deal of Mike Pence's? This was a terrible deal of Mike Pence's. There's no question about it. But we've had problems with both of the public-private partnerships. Remember, when, when uh, the toll road was sold off, it was supposed to be the greatest thing ever. And then they went belly up as well. And now who's maintaining the roads as those tolls are going up? What about the improvements that those, those drivers were promised if those tolls went up? We're not seeing those. And the same thing here. This should have been done. We talked about this at the time. This should have been done by bonds being issued. Instead, they tried this. And the question is, how much is this going to cost us? We're going to still have to issue those bonds. And, and recognizing the problem, anybody driving that route for the last two years knows it's a problem. And it's going to be delayed yet again, and we don't know how much more it's going to cost us than if they'd done it right the first time. Well, Joey, because of these problems, do you think that we will see a change of strategy with all of the road construction projects that are likely to come because of the new infrastructure bill? Well, look, I mean, I think you have to take these things on a case-by-case -case basis. A so public-private partnership, by definition, is an individual partnership, right? You've got different actors, diff different people, diff different plans um, that go in. So they need to be, we can't write off the entire deal. And, you know, to my friends on the other side of the aisle, I mean, if our first, if our first instinct is always just to bond, thing, bond things out, and our first instinct is always just more debt for taxpayers, then we're not going to be able to fuel any kind of innovation in this. This deal didn't work. Yeah. They're fixing it. Public-private uh, partnership moving, moving, means moving, the public pays is all it means. Moving on. Finally, this week, Planned Parenthood held a celebration in downtown Indianapolis for Mike Pence's birthday. Making an appearance at the event was a man who goes by the name Mike Hot Pence, who's been appearing around the country raising money for causes the vice president isn't necessarily aligned with. And Delaney, is this disrespectful or just harmless fun? I think it's harmless fun because nobody, nobody would ever use the adjective hot in describing <laughs> Vice President Pence. <laughs> harmless fun? Harmless fun. He's a public figure. It's part of the game. All right. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Joey Fox, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Katzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.